The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Eyes now, ye white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. The birds. The birds! He rises! From the classic 1956 film Moby Dick, where Gregory Peck was playing Ahab. The author of that book is, of course, Herman Melville, a leading figure of 19th century American Romanticism and one of the world's great novelists. Melville led a fascinating life. He was born in New York City in 1819 and died in near obscurity in 1891 at the age of 72. In between, he toiled away, successful for a while, even well-regarded for some of his more popular seafaring tales, but by the time of his death he was long forgotten. More people thought he was dead than knew he was alive, said a somewhat uncharitable obituary writer. Born into an intensely American family, Melville tried to make his way as a writer, completing ten or so novels and novellas and enough stories for a collection. For years he wrote only poetry, and yet he was a writer's writer, a friend of Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe his best friend, but barely a blip in the minds of the public. At his death, his masterpiece Moby Dick had sold barely 3,000 copies in his lifetime. Today, of course, is a different story for Mr. Melville. 199 years after his birth, his life and works are celebrated around the world. And in one festival in particular... The Moby Dick Marathon, the celebration runs very deep, lasting two days and including a full reading of the novel on board the Charles W. Morgan. We're going to be joined today by a special guest, longtime listener Christina, who attended this year's marathon and spent 24 hours on board that ship listening to the book. After I run through some highlights of Melville's life and works, Christina will be joining Mike and me for an account of her experience on, at the marathon on the Morgan as well as a special Herman Melville draft. Herman Melville, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you joined me today. Herman Melville. A lot to do. Let's get started quickly with an email. This one comes from listener Bob. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door. Hello? Yes? Can I help you? <laughs> You're so busy Hello. Writing. This is Bartleby. The Scrivener. Hello, Bartleby. I knew you'd be here. You might I'll... know me from the story by Herman Melville called... Yes. Bartleby, mm -hmm. the Scrivener. Yes, indeed I, I do. became and famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to. 
So when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson、oh, asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. Ah. <sighs> Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? There we go, Bartleby. Such a fine interruption from such a wonderful guy. And you know, part of the problem with Bartleby was that he refused to scriven, and yet, when he comes and knocks on the door, he seems to be. Scrivening all the time, Melville. Well, we'll be talking about this story, Bartleby the Scrivener, which has had a fascinating legacy. As Bartleby notes, you should not not help out the show. Isn't that a preference we can all share? If you'd like to help support the show, or if you're even just thinking about it, you can head on over to Patreon.com/literature and sign up for a small monthly contribution, or a medium-sized one, or a large one. It's up to you. I appreciate any support you can give. It comes from your credit card or PayPal account, or if you'd rather give your donation in a single shot, you can head on over to historyofliterature.com/shop, where you can buy me a virtual coffee or coffees, whichever you prefer. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, buy me a cup of grog, whatever is your drink of choice, and picture us lifting a glass and toasting the joys of literature. That's Patreon.com/literature and HistoryofLiterature.com/shop. This week we're thanking new patrons Mahmoud, Matilde, or Matilda, Peter, and Anonymous. Many thanks to you and everyone else who has signed up to support the show. Okay, onto the email. Listener Bob has written a beauty. Email from Bob. Hello, Jack. I hope this email finds you well. I have been meaning to write for some time, and have been trying to think of an interesting way to articulate myself, as so many of your other listener mail emailers do. However, I think I have just overthought it to oblivion. Eventually, I realized that this email would never get written. So, I am going to take a simpler approach. Jack, I really enjoy the podcast. Thank you so damn much for all the work you do to prepare, write, record, share, etc. I travel a lot for work, both to the office each day and often to visit clients in other parts of the continent. And having your podcast with me has made the traveling less of a burden. I live well outside of Toronto, Ontario, and commute an hour and ten minutes each way each day. The small town I live in is a mix of forest and farmland, with one downtown strip of shops. It's a very calm place. Not far from where I live, one could find all sorts of unique restaurants, microbreweries, local artisan shops, etc. There's a lot of personality. I have everything I need without having to go into the city. Anyway, it's from my small town there that I put on my headphones and get on the train. As the train heads into Toronto, the scenery changes from green to gray as we move through more populated and urbanized areas. Walking through Toronto to my office is the exact opposite of the scene at my town's train station. Lots of people, lots of noise, and lots of concrete. I feel I should mention at this point that I think Toronto is a great city, and I enjoy working there, but prefer to live where I live. It's embarrassing to admit, but when I first found your podcast, I was basically looking for a podcast that could take me through some of the great books that I haven't read and give me what I needed to know 
because there are so many books and so little time. However, what I found when I found your show was so much more than that. You oftentimes break down the concepts that the author was conveying, and you help your listeners get to the root of the story. The episodes you did on Joyce's The Dead really articulate what I'm trying to say. I should also mention that those two episodes have really stuck with me. I have since read the book and watched the film. With that said, I will now say that you have helped me understand that I should enjoy the journey when it comes to the books I read. While this is not any sort of major revelation, it is to me, as I was only a casual, part-time reader at the best of times. This podcast and the books I have now added to my to-read shelf, which I have already begun digging into, have done me a real service, and I feel I am better for it. P.S. I went on a trip this year with my family to Wales, as my, fa- my wife has some family there. I got to enjoy listening to your podcast while on a morning walk one day in a place called Betis y Cod. <laughs> I have no idea if that's pronounced that way. Which is about as charming and picturesque as an old village in Wales can get. Thank you again, Bob. Well, Bob, thank you for such a wonderful email. I just cannot get enough of these emails where I get the pleasure of hearing about the where and the when of your listening experience and hear your kind words. As always, I consider it quite a privilege to be joining you on your journey, just as you've been joining me on mine. It is an honor. So here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break, then get a an overview of Melville the Man and his works. Then we'll hear all about what it's like to be on a ship listening to Moby Dick for 24 hours. And we'll close with a quick draft of Nine Reasons to Love, this incredible author. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Herman Melville was an American writer, one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest, some might argue, and his life is an American story of a certain type. The 18th century is a story of the colonies and the founding fathers. It's a story of political thinking and writing, the 
the forging of a nation. Some beautiful prose was written in the 18th century. The speeches, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers. The 19th century is the story of the frontier, of coming of age as Americans. What does it mean to be this upstart country, to have all this newness? How does one relate to Europe and all its civilization and history and traditions? Writers like Hawthorne and James seem to say, we're new, we're on the scene, we can be every bit as cultured, we can just have a different sensibility, a divergent history from Europe. But we too can participate in the cultural conversation. Take us seriously. A writer like Mark Twain or Ambrose Bierce says, who needs Europe? That's stuffy, that's museums and fine china and polite manners and outdated traditions. Hemingway comes out of that tradition. His favorite American book was Huckleberry Finn, after all. And The Sun Also Rises has an American as kind of a tourist extraordinaire. The one who was recognized and saluted by Europeans as being kind of a superior being, a new being, a strong being. It's the bridge from America as a fledgling nation to an ascendant one, a nation growing into its eventual superpower status. It's one of the things that can be infuriating about Hemingway, especially reading it now with hindsight. And can you hear that cricket, ladies and gentlemen? (laughs) Dear listeners, there's a cricket here in the studio. I think he is hiding out. It's been quite rainy here where I am, and he's found a, a nice dry little space somewhere that I cannot see. He's quiet until I start talking, and then he chimes in. I don't know if he's wants to join the show. <laughs> Fan of Melville or a critic in any case. I'm not sure what to do. Hopefully it's not too disruptive to your listening experience. Let's get back to the Hemingway and the, <laughs> the rest of the show. If I had to choose an American novel of the 20th century, I would probably go with either The Adventures of Augie March by Saul Bellow, which isn't my favorite Saul Bellow novel, but probably best carries the mantle of a wild, sprawling tale, the immigrant kid on the make, coming through the Depression and heading into World War II and the cerebral Eisenhower years, or perhaps Toni Morrison's Beloved, which wrestles with the legacy and ghosts of slavery that have haunted America's past. My guess is that the 21st century American novel will be another wild outburst, a multicultural crazy quilt, something that captures the overgrown cities and land we have now. We have mature institutions. Hollywood has a past. Television has a past. The internet has matured. Our court system has had time to mull over all the old questions and look forward to some of the new ones. We have immigrant communities with deep roots. We have an explosion of food and music and people and activity. And yet, It's also like an empire careening out of control. It's a land of religions and sports and microcultures and crazy popular figures, viral videos and pockets of information and social media groups and an environment that's headed toward oblivion. Someone will stuff a book full of pages of prose that does justice to all this. Herman Melville did something similar. In the 19th century, getting back to Melville, he strikes me as different in his attitude towards Europe. He's more in the Emerson line, which is appropriate since he was in New York and Massachusetts at the time when Emerson's essays and lectures were everywhere. Melville takes the ideas of Europe, the old ones and some new ones, and wrestles with them. 
Melville reads Shakespeare and is blown away, and suddenly he's trying to capture Shakespeare, the spirit of Shakespeare, just as he's trying to capture the Bible, trying to absorb Plato and Milton and everyone big who came before, trying to understand their ideas, and then trying to figure out who he is. Who's Herman Melville, and what does it mean to be an American? And trying to take all this in and sort it all out in his mind and get it all down on the page. Here's his description of writing Moby Dick. Quote, Taking a book off the brain is akin to the ticklish and dangerous business of taking an old painting off a panel. You have to scrape off the whole business in order to get at it with safety. Here's another quote I like. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. No great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Parenthetical. We saw John Donne writing about a flea in his, in his poem. You can check out that episode to see someone who has tried it with some great success. But we take Melville's point, a mighty book, needs a mighty theme, and that's what Melville did. The mightiest of themes run through his books, slavery and its legacy, man versus nature, Christianity, work, justice and injustice, man and his obsessions, madness. They are big and broad and overarching and wonderful. Melville came from a prominent family, but was not himself promising, and yet I think there was something in that, something in his failure as a young scholar, his father said he was, quote, awkward in speech and somewhat slow in comprehension, end quote. His older brother, Gansevoort, was much more promising. He would write letters to, letters to home saying Herman's doing a little better. <laughs> They're very uh, charming letters. The older brother looking out for his younger brother, although we get a picture of Herman not doing so well at school. I think his inattention at school was not because he was a dullard, as seems to have been suspected, but because he was a dreamer and a thinker, someone who was quiet, not because he didn't know the answer, but because he was fascinated by the question, and maybe because the question provoked even bigger questions in his mind, and he was flooded with thoughts about those questions too. So, how did he get this way? Let's start with some facts. Herman Melville was born in 1819 to a prominent New York family that soon encountered hard times as his father died abruptly when Melville was 13. His grandfathers were both famous Americans and well-known patriots from the Revolutionary War era. His father's father, Thomas Melville, was a major in the American Army who had taken part in the Boston Tea Party. His mother's father was a general who had commanded the defense of New York's Fort Stanwix. In 1777, Melville was proud of these revolutionary roots. His father, Alan Melville, didn't go to college, but was sent to Paris to further his advancement there. He was a successful importer of French goods whose proclivities for spending somewhat outpaced his income. The family kept moving to nicer and nicer houses, finally landing in a very elegant place on Broadway. Apparently, though, this was all in spite of Alan Melville's increasing debts, and the family had been receiving secret infusions of cash from Melville's mother's side to support their spending. Melville's mother's family halted their support with Alan 
$20,000 in the hole. That's more than half a million dollars today. Alan died a couple of years later. And Herman and his seven siblings were now forced to adapt to a new reality and deal with the financial wreckage that their father's spending habits and untimely death had left behind. As we saw earlier, Herman had been an unsuccessful student. He contracted scarlet fever at one point and had trouble with his eyesight, compounding his difficulties. And soon enough, his family circumstances meant that he had to find a way to supplement his income, his family's income, and assist his eldest brother, Gansevoort, who had taken over his father's felt and fur business. Herman tried working as a bank clerk for a while, and then he went out to work on his uncle's farm in Massachusetts. He attended school where he could, ended up teaching for a while, which he didn't enjoy. He was in a debating society. You can see a pattern with the young Melville as he's coming of age. Jobs are boring. Jobs take him away from the life of the mind he wants to live. But jobs earn money, and jobs are therefore necessary. He took one more shot at a regular job, hoping to get a position with the Erie Canal Project, but that didn't work out either. So his oldest brother, Gansevoort, signed him up to work as a cabin boy on a merchant ship sailing between New York and Liverpool. Melville didn't immediately take to the life as a sailor. He returned to America and was basically living off the charity of his extended family. He tried teaching again, and he took off to find his uncle, the one who used to own the farm, and who now lived in Illinois. But he didn't have a job for Melville either. So in 1841, adrift and almost without hope, Melville signed up on the Okushnet, a ship sailing from New Bedford, Massachusetts, to the South Seas. It was a whaler. Needless to say, it was a decision with enormous consequences for American literature. Five years later, Melville wrote his first novel, Taipei, which was an exaggerated account of some of his experiences on that voyage in what is now French Polynesia. He claimed to have been living for four months among a cannibalistic peoples. We know at least some of this isn't exactly accurate since he signed on with a whaler a month after leaving the Akushnet. But in any case, one might imagine that he was putting together both his own accounts and those he heard on board the ships, and those he heard when on shore. Plus, he had his own imagination to draw upon. He jumped ship at one point and participated in a mutiny at another. He was put in jail in Tahiti and escaped. He drew upon these events for his second book, Omu, which shows the mutiny as a farce, which might not be far from the truth. He also signed on as a harpooner on a whaler called the Charles and Henry. He lived in Hawaii for a while and sailed back to Boston on a frigate called United States. Meanwhile, his family was doing better. Gansevoort was gaining, gaining success in the political world thanks to the election of James K. Polk as president, who appointed Gansevoort to a diplomatic position in London. Melville came home full of stories of his adventures, and his family, now that they had a little breathing room, urged him to spend some time writing them down. The books were a modest success, and Melville gained some fame as a writer of adventure stories. Gansevoort died young, and Melville then took it upon himself to support the family, which he tried to do with his writing. He married the daughter of the Chief Justice of Massachusetts and tried to get a job with the U.S. Treasury, as he found that his writing was not quite enough. 
He wrote a bunch of books quickly, and they did increasingly less well. He himself was reading Shakespeare and developing a sense of melancholy, and the books started to reflect this, and this was apparently not good for sales of what were supposed to be swashbuckling adventure stories. He went to listen to Emerson's lectures, and he read The Scarlet Letter in 1850, which blew him away. He reached out to Hawthorne. The two became friends, and Melville moved to a home near Hawthorne's. They were neighbors now and in deep sympathy with one another, and Melville was inspired. He began a new novel, which he called The Whale. Hawthorne urged him to make it more allegorical, and Melville did, renamed the book Moby Dick, and dedicated it to Hawthorne. He truly did love Hawthorne, even though Hawthorne was older and less demonstrative. Melville said things like, we have, quote, an infinite fraternity of feeling, end quote. Hawthorne was a little uncomfortable with this level of effusion, and the two gradually grew apart. Moby Dick wasn't well-received and didn't sell many copies. Most critics didn't know exactly what to do with it. Stuffed as it was with narrative, action, lively characters, quotes about whales, descriptions about the activities of whalers, and sometimes wild rhetoric and philosophical passages. An intellectual chowder, said one reviewer. That review was mostly favorable, but its impact was limited, and Moby Dick was not perceived to be a classic until many years after Melville's death, when it was rediscovered. And his other works, increasingly melancholy, were not much better, did not fare much better with the critics. He received horrible reviews for his autobiographical novel, Pierre. Herman Melville Crazy ran the headline over one of them. Other reviews followed a dead failure, unhealthy, abominable, monstrously unnatural, horrors and trash to the last, turgid, pretentious, and useless, sound, fury, and perfect incomprehensibility. <laughs> Poor Melville. He lived out his life for 40 years or so, writing a couple more novels before finally landing a job in a custom house, which brought him financial security at last. But the novel writing was over. He seems to have kept his creative spark alive with poetry and a short novel, Billy Bud, which he was working on at his death in 1891 and went unpublished until 1924. The general view of him in his obituary... Apparently, there was only one obituary of him, was that he was a once famous writer whom nobody much remembered. And those that did know his name had assumed he was already dead. In the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, a single paragraph describes his life and works. Today, of course, the description is many pages long, and his influence on the writers of the 20th century is incalculable. Today, there's no list of American novels, or really novels in general, that would be complete without his masterpiece, Moby Dick. And readers who dig further will discover some unexpected pleasures in his catalog. We'll talk about some of these in our next conversation with Christina and Mike. We'll have a story from the Melville Festival and a draft on reasons to love Herman Melville. That's all coming up after this.
Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who has been reading and rereading Melville's works for many years. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. And we're joined now by listener Christina, also known as the Classic Slacker, who hosts a <laughs> blog of that name and who has been a longtime listener of the History of Literature podcast. Christina also recently attended the Moby Dick Marathon held at Mystic Seaport. And she joins us from her home, I believe, in Connecticut. Is that right, Christina? In Mystic, Connecticut. In Mystic, Connecticut. Oh, perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Welcome yep. to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. I'm just thrilled to be here. Okay. So let's start, Christina, with the festival. Uh, what's it like and how many years have you been attending? Well, I've I've been attending uh, for two years. This past this summer was my second time. It's been held at the Mystic Seaport for 33 years in a row. Do they have other events? I know they have the what we want to get to, which is the marathon reading of Moby Dick. Right. Do they right. have other events as well? Yeah, the whole the seaport is um, it's like a replica of a whaling village um, from the 1840s, and so. Basically, anything you would ever want to know about whaling <laughs> goes on in this village. It attracts a whole lot of visitors every summer in particular. And for me, this this read, the read on the Charles Morgan, which was the last uh, whale, whaling ship uh, ever in existence, is uh, is the big draw. Mm. So they have the, the Charles Morgan is docked there? Yes. Yes, it's docked there. It's like I said, it's the last one that's ever that's ever sailed. Uh, most of the whaling ships sailed out of New Bedford and Nantucket, uh, but Mystic is, is known as a ship building area. And also a lot of the whaling ships were kept in the harbors in Mystic. So that's why it has so much of a whaling tradition around here. The, the houses, you'll see widow's walks. Um, the signs on some of the houses will say, you know, Jack Wilson, shipbuilder, or Mike Palindrome, carpenter. And so it's a, right. it's a very historic area and a very beautiful area, I might add. Hmm. Well, I actually have been there long ago, oh. and I associate that museum with uh, some of the listeners who maybe Patrick O'Brien fans might uh, be aware of the beautiful paintings on the covers of the Patrick O'Brien books by uh, Jeff Hunt. And mm -hmm. they sell those in the Mystic Seaport Museum. I think it might be the only place in North America where you can buy them. Yep. And the museum has undergone a huge uh, renovation in the last summer. And it's just, it's a stunning, uh, stunning sculpture. You really, it's yet another reason to come to Mystic and the Mystic Seaport. Okay. So let's talk about the marathon reading. So yeah. it's on board the ship. I understand it's a little bit hard to get a spot. It looks like you, you have to get advanced tickets or something, or what was oh. your experience? No, it's actually the very opposite of that. Ah. I, I called them up and I said, how do I do this? And they're like, you know, pay for the uh, coming onto the seaport and, you know, we'll see you there. <laughs> it was incredibly uh, uh, low key. Um, yeah, you don't have to, to prove yourself, your, your metal, your knowledge of Melville, anything. And uh, and I remember having a lot of questions about the logistics and they they're like, just, you know, come on board, don't eat anything on the boat. That's yeah. it. That okay. Would be the so what what does it look like when you're there? Are you you're on 
on deck and is somebody standing behind a podium or how do they do the actual reading? And this yeah. is, this is, I should explain, it's an entire reading of the novel Moby Dick, which most it's, people, uh, every, I guess, school child knows how long and, and thick that <laughs> book is. So it's uh, pretty darn long. Yes. It, um, it, the whole the book, the entire book is read all the way from call me Ishmael to, you know, singing for her lost for her children, whatever it is about Rachel at the end. And it starts, uh, there's actually just a, sh a plain old sign up sheet and people can fill in their names for whatever, you know, chapters they want to read. But really what I should do is go back and say that what they want you to do is sign up for a chapter that's the first one that's available. You're not really mm. supposed to cherry pick for the best chapters. At least that's what happened <laughs> last year. This year they went all wild and woolly. I don't know what happened. The, the, the laws went down, something happened. And there were people that were indeed uh, cherry picking the best chapters, you know, such as the one when Ahab says, okay, this is why we really are on this boat. We're going to go get this, this whale. You know, mm. And, uh, or when there's chapters where there's more accents that people can, can do or um yeah they just yeah there there were various things like that and and when i started i'm very rules oriented and i went there and i filled in the first chapter available going by what the policy had been the year before and i did a uh, read a chapter on um it was queequeg's biography and then saw that people were cherry picking and i went well okay i if this is what's going to happen then i'm going to sign up for the Cytology chapter, and that's the one where Ishmael suddenly mm. becomes a marine biologist, and, yes. and he does every single classification of whale that there is, uh, and just goes on and on and on. And I just thought, you know, I was going to take one for the team. So uh, the problem there was there's an awful lot of Latin, and mm. I was texting back to my to my husband and saying, "Wait, how do you pronounce?" <laughs> Legge, L-E-G, is that legge, is it legge? Um, but I got through it and got a big big round of applause for taking on the cytology chapter, so I was happy about that. Oh, that's great. And how long mm -hmm. does the reading take? Well, it takes 24 hours. We start at noon. Uh, they have a an actor who comes dressed as Melville himself, and he reads <laughs> the Loomings chapter uh, by heart. <laughs> which is really amazing. And then he shows up 24 hours later and he reads the ep uh, the, <laughs> the epilogue chapter. And it was interesting too, this year, somebody who had done it last year said, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're ahead of pace this year, you know, we, and then it's, if the readers go slower or faster than, then everything sort of changes. But, but both years that I've done it, it's, it's been noon to noon. And you've stayed there the whole time? I did. I, I just, at one point I thought I'll just come on and I'll, you know, hear a little bit and go back. And it was the first year. Um, I definitely wanted to, to stay on the 24 hours. The second year, I wasn't so sure if I was going to. And then I was like, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it like whole hog. I mean, it's the entire experience. It's there. There are people that come on from the seaport who um, are visitors and they come and listen a little bit and then they leave. But there's about 20 or so people who just stay there the entire time and people bring their uh, their their uh, backpacks and their sleeping bags and their pillows and their um, beach chairs. And the only thing you're not supposed to do is bring food. Uh, you're supposed to eat it off of the boat and you have to go, there's a little bathroom you could go to. Mm. And some people were, they were, they were, they were bound and determined to stay awake the entire time. Uh, there were, 
there was an actor who came up from New York and he brought with him three bottles of that five-hour energy drink <laughs> <laughs> and just turned this obviously into some sort of, uh, of acting challenge for himself. So he, he tended to pick chapters where there was a lot of that that he could do. Right. Um, but most people went to sleep um, when it got to be in like the one, two o'clock range or so. I managed to stay awake this year until about 2.30 in the morning, and I had picked a chapter um, pretty far ahead. Like Because of this way that we did of not signing up for the next chapter, I started doing this, okay, I'm going to pick the chapters where the Pequod meets a certain ship, and I, I knew chapters like that, and I'll just do those. But the problem there was the further up you signed, you didn't really know when your time was going to come. Right, right. So you, so, couldn't, you <laughs> couldn't be asleep when it was your turn. No, exactly. And the thing is that people are very good about like just you just see when the chapter ends and the next person just stands right up and it's there, you know, ready to go. <laughs> many of this, oh, wait, who was supposed to do? You know, it's all very, very, um, it's 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 run really well and uh and it's 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 almost like a sacred reading you know that everyone you, you finish there is applause and then the next person gets up and reads but anyway that when i was reading that one it was the the chapter uh called the virgin and this was uh when the pequod meets a german boat that uh didn't catch any whales, and they're actually going on board and asking the Pequod for some some uh, oil because the the ship is dark. <laughs> so they, uh, I thought I thought this was this was going to be a short chapter, and I'd be able to go to bed. And this is around two thirty in the morning, and I'm looking at this page. Of course, I'm looking ahead of time before I'm going to read. I'm like, oh my god, what have I done? Because it's page after page. What I had forgotten is that there's going to be a full battle between the two boats to kill some whales. Some whales just happen to show up. So it's like 2.30 and I'm reading and reading and I'm a marathon runner and I was really having to call upon my marathon strength <laughs> to read this story and get there without just falling on my feet. And I got back to my little spot on the boat. I managed to find a platform and, and put my sleeping bag up there so I wasn't right on the floor and went to sleep. And when I woke up, it was five o'clock in the morning. So I just, it was really two hours. And what, what I remember very, very clearly is the first thing I heard was someone saying, would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you don't often wake up and hear the, that first thing. Right. Someone saying that. Yeah. So it's an, it's an incredible singular event. There's just no other time that you're going to have 20 people unknown who come and sit on this, this whaling ship and read this book that was written 170 years ago. And it's really long and has a reputation for being boring. Um, but I love the event and I would, I will do it every year as long as I can. So how was it? it it's obviously a, a very dramatic experience to go through it, but how was it as a listening experience? Did you feel as if you heard Melville in a new way or, or felt anything differently about the novel than you would have gotten had you just uh, sat with the book and read it yourself? Wow, good question. Um, I think the way that, the way to hear all the different voices saying it um, mm -hmm. uh, made it different. But I think the, the, the way in which it was different to me is that there are these words, the, so many of them are nautical or they're related to whaling, 
that you read along and okay, whatever, whatever. But when you have to read it out loud, you have to know some of the pronunciations of these words. I mean, one of them that I noted was the word gunnel, you know, is spelled uh, G-U-N-W-A-L-E. So it's spelled gunwale, but it's pronounced gunnel. And then there's a word, uh, for, it's spelled forecastle, F-O-R-C-A-S-T-L-E, and it's pronounced folksle. <laughs> so, right, right. so those are the kinds of things when you're reading out loud that are so different. Um, but I don't know that I experienced the book any differently, except that you know that you can be read in 24 hours and everyone's just coming together to, to do it. And it's, it's this love of the book as opposed to what, what this book often is, uh, comes across as, oh, like the worst book ever written. If you say to just anybody, oh, Moby Dick, and like, oh, I had to read that in high school and you know, kill me now. My, my brother-in-law was joking to me that when he was in high school, he used the book as a, as a car scraper in winter. Mm. He, <laughs> he told his English teacher that. Yeah, it was really helpful. I used I, it to scrape my car. I actually had a new idea for Moby Dick that I, mm. I developed this last time I was reading it, which is, I think, I don't think it should ever be required reading in high school, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. think every American should be given a copy of it when they turn 30 and ah. they should be encouraged to read it at that age. And yeah. it just seems like require as a required text, it's, it's just not the best way to present it, especially for someone that young. And, and if people are impatient, you know, I had the experience of reading it in kind of a marathon reading in college where I was getting ready for an exam and I left myself one full day to read it at the library and, and 16 hours or something. And I was, I was trying to plow through the whole thing and it made me realize that probably wasn't the best way to read it. Uh, mm-hmm. just because the end picks up the action narrative really picks up at the end right and at that point i was so exhausted that i don't think i enjoyed it on that reading the way i would ordinarily if i had taken a few breaks and had kind of had some time to regroup before Mm -hmm. entering into the ending yeah yeah but it's really true i mean it's 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 great in the beginning then there's quite a lot of like you must know these things. Ishmael will say, you cannot get the story any further if you don't first know everything there is to know about the rope, you know, or the, the harpoon or the, the makeup of the, the oil and the, you know, it's just all these things that right. really don't advance the story. And I think when you're a young person, you're like, please know the story. And yeah. you know, me and my age, I was kind of amused by all the digressions that he takes and and with with my blog the classic slacker i was really able to make fun of those things yeah i i enjoy that as well i like the mm-hmm. kind of the meditative quality of it right. of it and and that you're basically in the hands of an author who really wants you to understand everything there is to know about whaling and Right. And the life of a uh, of a sailor. It it's uh, I don't mind the digressions either. So, so next year is the two hundredth birthday That's of right. Mr. Melville. That's Do right. you know That's if right. there's anything special planned? You know, I asked I asked the seaport uh, person who was in charge of the event, and she's like, "Yeah, we know it's coming." <laughs> <laughs> and they have cake every year um, because it starts on July 31st at noon and then it ends on the on August 1st, which was Melville's birthday. And they, they bring out this white cake and, and Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And she said that 
they were considering certain things, but they they were she was being very vague about the whole thing. So, hmm. uh, in a way, like I'm excited about the idea that will be the 200th anniversary, and at the same time, the way that it's just so low key, and you know, we just show up and we read and we leave. That's that's kind of that's kind of great too. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will uh, stay tuned to see what yes. uh, what they have Thank planned at Mystic. So Thank why you. don't hey, we? Hey, Christina, oh. can I can I ask? Um, were there regulars? Were there people who had been attending for like ten or twenty years? Yeah, the, there was one couple that I asked, and they had been doing it about twenty years in a row. And there were <laughs> yes, wow. and they live here. Some people, um, there's a lot of people own boats in this area, and some would come. Oh. You know, want this one couple rode their boat, sailed their boat from New Haven, Connecticut, uh, you know, up the Mystic River, and they parked their boat there, and and. <laughs> Some of them will sleep on the boat or they go back. That's where they have their the bathroom and all that. And they make a, a big thing of it. And then, like I said, this was only my second year. But there were people that I saw that had been there the year before. So, and I'm I'm going to be one of those people 20 yeah. years from now. Yeah, this is my 21st year. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am again, reading I, the, the hyena or whatever. Because <laughs> I reread it um, and I was noticing... Uh, passages and I was just imagining people who had gone and just said it aloud and read it aloud for 10 years to have mm -hmm. probably memorized good chunks of it. Yeah. 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 I, the, the one the last year, there was someone who said to me, and it was a real uh, compliment. He says, I really hope that you'll get chapter 132, which is called <laughs> symphony. And uh -huh. that's the one where Ahab, at last thinks maybe this wasn't such a great idea <laughs> going after this whale and, and even more so spending his whole life as a whaleman and, and that he right. he had a wife and he had a son and he didn't ever see them again and he just this is bad news so it's beautiful because of the poignancy of it and that for the very first time uh in this whole book where he's been described as you know monomaniacal and crazy and all that um that he has his this little bit of humanity and it's really sweet and the one the one person on the boat said to me i every time i hear that chapter i cry and mm. he said i'm so glad that that you read it so that was that was really very sweet and and i tried to get it again this year um <laughs> and there, we had one reader who was she was just really hogging all the chapters now i'm getting uh, into the ugly stuff about the read <laughs> he, he uh did perhaps 75 percent of the the chapters and i i think i was at the restroom and i came back to the boat and i was thinking wow i really want to read the symphony again and i went up to the sign-up sheet and just as i was going to write my name next to chapter 132 he had just started and I'm like, don't you dare read 132. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, fine, you signed up. By then, I think, you know, the, the, there was a mutiny on the bounty and it was uh, <laughs> getting out of the place. So it was that. But, but uh, it's an amazing event nonetheless. Okay. Well, that, thank you for sharing that sure. with us. And let's turn to our draft now. We're, we're going to do a draft, uh, three picks each. And we'll do nine reasons to love Herman Melville. So Hi. Christina, as our guest, who has just spent all this time immersed in uh, the world of Melville, we will let you go first. Okay, well, I'm going to pick the humor of uh, Herman oh. Melville. Oh, 
Okay. Man, that was my that was my number one. Uh, I, I got you, Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really funny. Uh, the one of the first sentences that I really thought was hilarious was that he he says it's uh, better to sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. Mm-hmm. After he spent all this time with all these uh, crazy sailors in the in the first inn. And then the the Ramadan chapter is probably the one that was it's like something out of farce. I mean, you could you could see a, a play being done of this, and it's this is the one where Queequeg has a twenty four hour fast and he locks himself in his room, and um, Ishmael is saying, "What are you doing? Get you know why is it taking so long?" And he tries to knock down the door. And he asks the uh, landlady to uh, knock the door down, and she's and she finds out that Queequeg's harpoon is in the closet, and she's concerned that he's uh, he has uh, committed suicide. So there's this line that that she says. She goes, uh, "Go, Betty, go to Snarls the painter and tell him to paint me a sign with no suicides here and no smart smoking in the parlor. <laughs> Might as well one." <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's a lot of humor with the landlord. There's also that sort of mistake where where Ishmael says, well, where is this roommate that I'm supposed to be bunking with? And he says, oh, he's he's out around the town trying to sell his head. And and the guy says, look, if you can't give me a straight answer, you know, and he sort of. (laughs) Didn't I tell you he's out selling heads? Yeah, that's great stuff. And uh yeah, and there's there's another uh, section in in Moby Dick. The the funny part went the first time they go after a whale, and you know this is like Ishmael's very excited, and this kinds of stuff happens, and he's he after it's horrible, and there's oars are tossed all over the place, and Ishmael is completely wet. You know, he says. Uh, Hey, you know, he talks to Stubb or whoever. Is it really a normal thing to go like full gale in the, you know, the gale of a storm and go after well? And they're like, yep, you know, and is it really, you know, what we, you know, another thing that he does, if I had the, if I had the thing here, I would read it to you. But in three ways, he says, is this what you do? And they all say three times, yep, yep, yep. And he's like, okay, well, then I guess I'm just going to go make out my will. And, uh, you know, Queequeg, you can help me out with this. So, so that was the other uh, the humor I found mm-hmm. in Moby, and and it's in Bartleby the Scrivener, which I just read as yeah, well. Bartleby Every- is a very funny story, and it's funny in a kind of uh, I think of it as sort of a precursor to Kafka. It's got mm-hmm. that kind of humor of mm-hmm. uh, uh, very dry, very sort of deadpan, but just very darkly funny. Right, right, and with quite a lot of humanity going on there too. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's a great pick. So, Mike, it sounds like Christina stole your number one. What do you uh, What do you have as a backup? So, I guess related to the humor is um, the friendships in Melville's works, mm. and you know, I, I just I, I love the whole uh, the way he he builds these relationships between characters, and you know, with Queequeg and Ishmael, and then. Ahab's friendship, if you can call it that, with with Moby Dick, and yeah, there's a lot of doubling or a lot of doppelgangers. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of Bartleby kind of is set up like that as well. And uh, Melville, I was reading a lot about Melville's friendship with Hawthorne, mm-hmm. and at one point, Melville <laughs> he liked Hawthorne so much that he moved mm-hmm. in 
he he bought a house <laughs> near his, so they were neighbors. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they got along really well, and it seems to be what kind of inspired uh, Melville to turn from adventure story writing to Moby Dick. Hawthorne had encouraged him to write an allegorical novel, which I think really kind of fueled his imagination. The Scarlet Letter came out, and that inspired him as well, and he dedicated Moby Dick to Hawthorne. But he, he also, I think, kind of drove him away. I think he came on a little too strong, and he had a... Uh, he had a quote, which I don't know if I can find it here, but it was it was something like, we have an, an infinite fraternal uh, connection or something like that. And it, it seems like Hawthorne maybe was a little bit more reserved than that. And eventually the two drifted apart. But uh, But I like Melville's exuberance, that he was the one who was finding these friendships and wearing his heart on his sleeve, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, for for such a long book and for a book about whaling and action, there's so much sociability and there's so much kind of jockeying for friendships that I really like in 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 his works. Hmm. Yeah, you guys are using the word friendship maybe a little euphemistically. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot more too. Well, there's been a lot in the literature about the friendship between between Queequeg and Ishmael. It may have just been more than friendship. Yeah, no. The if arms, you get what I mean, hint, hint. Yeah, when he yeah. wakes up and the arms draped around him, they're like spooning or something. They're spooning, and there's a lot of references to you know he. You would have think thought that I'd been his groom, and then they they actually have a a, a sentence where he says, uh, you know, forevermore we were married. I mean, they actually use that word, and uh, there's been all kinds of talk about uh, this book being you know homoerotic. Um, and you know, you, you, when you come across a, a chapter like uh, that's you know called sperm, 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 <laughs> which isn't the name of it. That's what I call it in my parody, but it might as well be called that. Um, you have to say like, okay, what were these guys up to? So I think, yeah, there was friendship there um, with with Melville, Melville and Hawthorne, and there certainly was with uh, Ishmael and Queequeg, and um, even I would say Bartleby and uh, and his employer. Okay, so. I will take as my first pick. I'm going to uh, I'm going to say it's Melville's poetry. Mm-hmm. I know he um, he spent the last twenty or so years of his life writing mostly poetry, but I, I mean sort of the poetic quality of his prose as well. And I just wanted to I, I pulled out a passage here that I just wanted to read as as just some beautiful prose. This is from Moby Dick. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty, embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to the green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land, and do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee, Push not off from that isle, thou canst never return. 
That is beautiful. There's so many other beautiful passages as well. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, where you just go, ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah. I, I like the way he, he moves from thought to thought in, in a single sentence or sentences. Like I, I, I mark this, uh, the opening of chapter 107, The Carpenter, and I was um, I was reading it aloud before we started it. it. It's 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 amazing. It's it says it starts seat thyself sultanically among the moons of Saturn and take high abstracted man alone, and he seems a wonder, a grandeur, and a woe. But from the same point, take mankind in mass, and for the most part, they seem a mob of unnecessary duplicates, both contemporary and hereditary. Mm. Like just there, there's just turns where he he just surprises you with the the way he phrases something. Right. Here's another one I like. This one's very short. He's talking about the ocean here, and he says, "Beneath those stars is a universe of gliding monsters." <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So let's. Uh, we're on to Christina. Pick number yes. two. Number two, my number two was about his humanity and tolerance uh, for all people. Mm. And mm-hmm. he was, Melville was writing uh, in the mid 19th century, probably well before race relations had gotten anywhere. Actually, they maybe have a ways to go these days too. But back then in the, um, in the amongst the Civil War, that kind of time period, I thought the things that he was saying um, really surprised me, uh, starting with with uh, Queequeg, you know, being a cannibal, being the obviously practically the opposite of what Ishmael was, a white you know, Christian man in, uh, in the United States. And so there's a couple quotes from here about uh, the tolerance and humanity. And it was um, Ishmael saying about Queequeg, it's, it's only him outside. A man can be honest in any sort of skin. Um, also says that ignorance is the parent of fear. Uh, which I thought was great. And um, let's see, there were another couple places. Um, I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And at one point, too, um, he talks about uh, trying to get uh, Queequeg a job on the boat. <laughs> and the, the two... Uh, they're Quakers who are obviously supposed to be the the most Christian of Christians um, take Ishmael on, but they refuse Queequeg when they see that he's obviously a pagan. And um, there's a a really lovely sentence from, or a passage from Ishmael where he's trying to talk about why Queequeg should be allowed on the boat. And and he says, uh, onto the Pequod, he says, finding myself Thus hard pushed, I replied, I mean, sir, the same ancient Catholic church to which you and I and Captain Peleg there and Queequeg here and all of us and every mother's son and soul of us belong. The great and everlasting first congregation of this whole worshiping world. We all belong to that. Only some of us cherish some crotchets, no ways touching the grand belief. In that, we all join hands. But of course, uh, Peleg has nothing. He doesn't care about that beautiful speech. It doesn't move him, and he's still saying, "Sorry, he's a pagan." It's not until till Queequeg proves that he's a good harponeer that uh, he's he's hired. So, and then they're saying that uh, later on they say that uh, 
harpooners that are Christian are no good anyway. It, it takes the shark out of them. <laughs> so so much for holding on to the, those Christian ideals. When money is uh, it's being considered, it doesn't matter who he is. Right. That's a great mm-hmm. pick. It also applies throughout Melville's other works as well. Mm-hmm. There's there's mm-hmm. always you know the underlying thing that they all share is this deep respect for humanity and as you say tolerance benito sereno comes to mind another mm. great novella about the the uh, ship i hope i'm not stealing anyone's pick but it's basically mm. a a ship where the a captain sees this ship and and another captain is sent out a distress signal and the guy the first captain jo- boards the ship to help out and sees some things that he thinks are strange. It's a slave ship. And he, he sees the slaves are acting in a way that he thinks is a little inappropriate. And the captain is acting in some ways that he thinks is awkward. And the captain is claiming that there was a, some storm damage and they need some assistance. But it turns out that the slaves have revolted. And basically the captain is is being held as their prisoner and they are in charge of the ship. And it's it's just a a really fascinating story. It's it's it gives you a lot of things to think about, and the themes, the way Melville treats the themes, are really well done. And it's but it's got that same kind of uh, only somebody who had a deep regard for humanity, I think, could have written that, especially yes. coming from you know the position that Melville was in. He also shook Abraham Lincoln's hand. Wow. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. 1861, mm. I guess. So mm. he was. Uh, <laughs> he was uh he had an interesting life. Yep. Okay. So Mike Mike, remind me of what you took as your number one pick. Uh, I took friendship. Okay, friendship. So what are, what are you taking for number two? So for my number two, I uh, this is probably gonna cover a lot of other picks too, but I, I took the structure of Moby Dick and the mm-hmm. the the innovation of nonfiction chapters and how um I was reading that he had read Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy before he started writing Moby Dick, and mm. he he was fascinated by the use of digression. So I yes. I, I actually I, I think when I first started the first time I read it, I I was I was jarred by the nonfiction chapters and I didn't know what to make of it. But as I kept reading, I I started to love these sort of standalone chapters. Mm-hmm. There's, Mm-hmm. There's a chapter about the um, the furnaces on ships, the mm-hmm. fireworks. Yep. It's just a great like you could you could teach that chapter, you know, just by itself. I mean, it's just great writing, and it's. I think he this Moby Dick is sort of a precursor to the kind of creative nonfiction we see more and more these days. Mm-hmm. You know, like Dave Edgar's or Maggie Nelson. So. Well, it's like it. It gives you things to learn and it emphasizes how connected all of this is and how important it all yeah. was to the economy at the time and right, just to right. the whole society. And it it really does give you this feeling of this ship being sort of a floating microcosm of floating universe in and of itself. And mm-hmm. and then it has all of the rituals and all of the, you know, whenever I read like an adventure story that's set somewhere like on a ship, I want to go read some nonfiction books about the Navy of Napoleonic times or something like that. So I understand it better. And this kind of builds it all in. And so if you accept it as something that will help you understand what these guys are going through and how it all connects. 
I think of those chapters as being like a nice place to kind of catch my breath mm -hmm. and exercise a different side of my brain while I learn about something like, you know, the cytology or right. uh, yes. the... <laughs> so, yeah. and it, it, as a novel, it is wildly inventive and it feels mm. like you could point to Moby Dick if, if someone says, you know, what can a novel do or what are you allowed to get away with as a novelist or what can a novel contain? Mm -hmm. You can point to Moby Dick and say, basically, this demonstrates that it contain it can contain whatever whatever you want if the author mm -hmm. is committed to it enough and is writing with enough enthusiasm and exuberance. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a chapter where he lists, he says there were... 144,000 pounds of inferior cheese and 20,000 pounds of superior cheese. And then the very next paragraph, it goes, most statistical tables are parchingly dry in the reading, but not so in the present case. <laughs> you have to reread that to like, you're just like, what? Uh, okay, so that's a great choice. So that actually had been my number one, I think, but I've dug deep for the poetry on a spur of the moment decision. Oh, I think I like the poetry. I I, I had that pretty high up. It, the the descriptions of like the whale's face and the wrinkled <laughs> forehead. It's, it's it's so good. Yeah. I'm gonna go outside of Moby Dick and take uh, the themes that come through from Billy Budd. Oh. Um, and the way that that treats the the subject of justice. Mm. Billy Budd was a late work. It was unpublished at the time of Melville's death. It was, even though he was writing poetry, he obviously was writing some, uh, it's a, a short novel or a novella length work. Some say it's uh, a, a classic. I mean, I think most people agree that it's a classic. Some say that it's as good as Moby Dick or that it's it's Melville at his best. But basically, it's kind of a Conradian kind of tale. Billy Budd is this angelic figure who is beloved by his shipmates, and he has he has a stammer. And there's this horrible man named Claggart who hates Billy Budd because of his innocence and his good looks and his popularity. He's very envious of him. And so he falsely charges Billy with a conspiracy to mutiny. And a captain who's been kind of above the fray on this uh, agrees to hear the charges. And so he brings the two of them into his quarters and Claggart lays out these lies. And Billy is so upset, uh, but he's frustrated because he's, his stammer doesn't really permit him to respond. So he reaches out and he, he strikes Claggart and he kills him. Now the captain is faced with this decision because the laws at the time say, you know, this was the authority of the ship is has been challenged here and this is a, an act punishable by death. But he's got a ship full of people who love Billy and hate Claggart. But the law is, is saying you can't permit this kind of insubordination. And so the captain has this quote when it happens and he says, struck dead by an angel of God yet the angel must hang. <laughs> Once again, it's sort of a fascinating read, but it's Melville going after big themes and really putting on the table, you know, something that's very thought-provoking of what do you do when the law is compelling this perhaps unfair or unjust or undesirable result? Do you stay committed to the law 
or do you find a way to depart from the law and try to seek some other form of justice? And how do we in society feel about these laws and about mercy? And is the kind of law that works on a ship any different from the kind of law that we might say is necessary uh, during times of peace or just as part of civil society? It's a great story. Uh, I highly recommend it. I sort of recommend to everyone uh, to read uh, Moby Dick, but also to read Bartleby and mm. Billy Budd. And then if they want to keep going, there's The Confidence Man and uh, Benito Sereno. That's sort of my mm. short list of, of things to read by Melville. So, Christina, we are up to yes, your... Yes, I'm still here, yes. Your <laughs> final pick. Uh, I, well, a poetry was taken from me and... Uh, I don't know. I say that kind of in a, you know, I don't mean it to mean like it was taken from me, but I would say that my back, my backup uh, was also from Bartleby and it would have been the characterization. Um, Melville's brilliance around that. Uh, the fact that there's this short story with a main character who is colorless, has no personality whatsoever, who repeats the same five word sentence over and over again and yet we know all about him you know we know even more so how he affects the main character and the actions that the main character takes when he just becomes more and more exasperated and this this uh, the situation gets further and further to the point where he has to figure out what to do with this person who's in his employ who you know refuses to do anything <laughs> and it's it's so funny, um, but the way to characterize um, the main character—I don't even know what his name is. Like, he, there's this—he has other two people in his office named Turkey and Nippers, which is great. But um, that we're able to see the character of the main character via this uh, this character of Bartleby, who basically has no character, and I just thought that was a, a brilliant way of doing it i never i don't ever remember seeing that in any other kinds of literature yeah. How about you guys? it is such a great story it it inspired uh camus camus was a big fan uh, of this and it, mm -hmm. it yeah, a lot of people have seen it as kind of a very early existentialist uh story and and um you know melville being years and years ahead of that uh mm. philosophical curve but it it is just, it's just a wonderful story and it oh, it does it's it's funny it's psychologically rich it is yes. that got that kind of double or doppelganger aspect to it you right. don't know if uh, it's also been seen as an analysis of depression mm. you know being faced with being unable to to kind of act and be and uh, just perform normal actions and but i i like it as sort of a a reflection on a, a functioning society and what if someone is just opting out? What if someone right, is right. just not following the rules? How does that gum up the works? And what does it mean for the people who are, you know, busy carrying out all the things that we carry out every day at work and, and right, all right. the norms that we all follow and all of that? What does it mean when someone opts out and, and what does it do to the people around them? Right. And, and the other thing about that story, aside from characterization, is it maintains tension you know there's suspense like what is going to happen you know this guy keeps saying the same thing over i would prefer not to and it's just like you, you just are turning the page just think how is this going to 
to end. I just, it didn't look like it was, I, I, you just have no idea. So I, I, again, to use a, a character like that, where it's not, you know, car chases or intrigue or whatever, but it, the tension is, is really thick. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, great pick. Mike, your final pick. So I, I guess I just want to admire the work and just say that it's, you know, the ambition of mm. this work is something that is probably taken for granted now yeah. because it's become so such part 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 of the literary vernacular. But at the time, if you can imagine someone writing a a, a novel about a whale and mm. and making it a five hundred or six hundred page novel, mm-hmm. um, and it, I just admire. There's so many books written today, and there's so many books that have been written and. I, I, I think we could do with a little bit more ambition with, with, with mm-hmm. by writers to, that, you know, you think I, I, I went to an MFA program with a, a guy who was um, a good friend and also very arrogant. And he would turn to me and he would say, you know, do you think someone's going to read this work in 100 years? And then he, before I could answer, he would say, or 500 years. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I just think Moby Dick's going to be around that long. I agree. If the marathon reads are, are any indication, um, people are going to keep coming back every July 31st and August 1st to the Mystic Seaport. And there's another one I, I, I failed to mention in New Bedford that uh, at the beginning of January, and that one is is much more strict. They give you numbers that so you can only read parts of of the book, and but it's it's you know <laughs> highly popular, and people go there, and um, they they have all events around it. And again, this is a book that's 170 years old. It's it's not it is a dense read. It's and uh, and it's it's going to last forever. It's it's like a it's, it's Shakespeare really. Mm. Okay. I thought I might take The Confidence Man, which is the final novel by Melville, published in 1857, which is another <laughs> great attempt at getting at America. It's the steamboat voyage. It's kind of like the Canterbury Tales, except... Actually, why don't I just go ahead and pick that? So, <laughs> since I'm Do half, it. Do it, since Jack. I'm halfway into it. So it's basically the steamboat voyage. There's all of these passengers, and they have stories to tell. So it's told in you know the voices of all these different people except that they have this thing that's uniting all of them and that is this figure who's at the heart of most of their stories, which is uh, a guy who's snuck aboard the ship and he's the confidence man. He's trying to earn the trust of all the passengers. And you don't really know if he's been lying or if he's exaggerating or if he's you know, on the up and up and, and neither do the speakers. And they have various varying degrees of how much they believe him and how much they distrust him. And it really is a kind of dazzling book, especially for the time when it was written. It's really Melville. It's very playful, but it's also a kind of metafiction in, you know, a hundred years before that became sort of popular. And it's kind of hard to parse through and to know exactly where you stand. It's a lot of unreliable narrations mm. and uh, and viewpoints but it also is sort of a commentary on America at that time it talks of it it's very uh, specifically about speculation and people who were trying to get rich quickly whether it was by 
you know, heading out for the gold rush or uh, speculating in the, in the stock market. It also satirizes the world of 19th century American literature. There's characters that are based on Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and and Poe even shows up as a beggar. So the one I was I was going to take instead of that is number nine. Well, I was just going to take Ishmael, who uh, ah. is such a good uh, <laughs> is such a good such a good host for oh. the uh, the whole narrative. So, and I was going to read a little bit from the Looming's chapter, which is ah. is such a great uh, way to kick things off. But mm-hmm. instead, let's wrap up the draft. And Christina, we actually have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, are you ready? Well, if I can answer it as well as Mike does, then I feel like I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be okay. <laughs> because I'm sure he's not ashamed by never getting these questions correct. So, I'm in good company. I always okay. get them wrong, actually. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying. If I get them wrong, I won't feel so bad cuz Mike always does. Okay, here we go. Okay. After 24 hours aboard the ship, listening to a reading of Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. You awaken to find Herman Melville himself. Did I say that right? To find Herman Melville himself reading the Uh final chapter. He tells you that you've ascended into author paradise, where authors read to you a book of your choice in the perfect setting. He closes the book and says, and now you must walk the plank. When he sees the look of alarm on your face, he says, no, 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 don't worry. You're headed back to Earth and the real world. The plank is just the best bridge we've come up with. But Mm -hmm. because I feel bad about scaring you, I'm going to let you have one freebie. Choose any dead author you like, and I will arrange to have he or she read you a book of your choice in the perfect setting. Which author, book, and setting do you choose? And Christina... You can mm. you can ask your friend Mike for help if you would like. <laughs> <laughs> well, this doesn't seem to be a yes or no factual right. question, so I, I don't think I can lose. Um, but what first comes to mind? Well, it's hard to pick, but I, the first thing that came to mind was John Steinbeck and The Grapes of Wrath. Oh, how I would love to hear him read that and. I would hope it wouldn't be read to me in Oklahoma. I, I hope it's in California instead. <laughs> oh, like in uh, maybe in Napa Valley. Yeah, exactly. You know, glass of wine, the grapes of the grapes in my wine. You know, right, kind of, right. So, you're in you're in the hot tub, and Steinbeck mm-hmm. is probably sitting right. in a hard chair. You know, right. in his. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, and I'll also point out he was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and I think maybe one that Mike would agree is a was a worthy pick. As That's opposed a good to say pick. Bob Dylan. You know, the <laughs> the uh, the hard thing about it is I kind of, as I was thinking through what I would pick if if this had been presented to me, I was thinking a lot of the things you'd you'd think of picking might be a little bit long. And I don't know if a lengthy work would be the one that I would choose. Steinbeck seems mm-hmm. like a good length. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it's I think there is some diminishing returns if you get into, you know, Dickens, for example, you might get a little uh, I think he'd be a good reader. Yeah. But uh, I don't know that I would necessarily want to spend that much time. Right. And I don't think I would with Herman Melville either, if you want to know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I must confess. But it was quite lovely to have the actor portraying him. So we did all, your question almost is exactly what happened. There were right. 24 hours of us on the boat and Melville did show up and he read that the last epilogue. So uh, I also thought Shakespeare might be interesting because he's an actor. He could act out all of the characters, act out all, all the parts it. for you, which would be sort yeah. of interesting. Mike, uh, where would you go with that? Any writer, uh, any author reading his work? Yeah, they need to be deceased. <laughs> um, okay. Um, huh. I guess, I, you know, I've always wanted to, because we, we do have audio of certain writers, which is always uh, right. amazing to listen to. Maybe Dostoevsky reading mm. like notes notes from underground. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of Dostoevsky, but I, I hadn't thought of notes from underground, which would be, that'd be the perfect choice. And I think one of the reasons why I was thinking of him, for some reason, I kept imagining that the, I would want it to be indoors while there was bad weather outside. <laughs> and I don't know why that is, other than I think maybe it would seem like the author would be a little more into it or a little more, uh, you know, that, that it would just be the two of us and we'd be focused on the work. Mm. Be, mm -hmm. There's something cozy about being inside while there's a snowstorm or something outside. I ended up uh, thinking I would, because I, I thought of, for example, Homer reading uh, on, on a beach you know while i was <laughs> while i was cooling it on a on a, a nice greek beach uh i could have homer reading me something but even though i think he'd be a great reader obviously the oral with the oral tradition but there was something about being outside that didn't appeal to me and i also had to realize that some of these people would probably not be reading in english um, ah. so <laughs> I was going to point out Dostoevsky, yeah. you know, Russian. I don't know, maybe Mike, <laughs> Mike is fluent in Russian, so that could be, yeah. <laughs> he, uh, well, maybe Dostoevsky, although Dostoevsky's English was probably a little comic. Um, <laughs> kind of like we heard some Tolstoy's English in the Tolstoy mm -hmm. uh, episode. So mm -hmm. that was, it's a little bit, you do lose a little bit, I think. Um, yeah. So. I uh, I ended up landing on uh, choosing Emily Bronte reading Wuthering Heights inside mm -hmm. while there's a by a fireplace while there's a thunderstorm raging outside. Good pick. So we got a lot done. We got through the the draft. We got the great uh, inspiring description of the time at uh, Mystic. And mm -hmm. the uh, Melville, the Moby Dick Marathon, and we got through the surprise bonus question, which was, Yay. I found all of that to be very fun <laughs> and, and illuminating. Christina, thank you very much for joining us on the History of Literature. And Mike, thanks, as always, for joining us as well. Such thanks, a pleasure, Jack. Jack. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Christina, the classic slacker, for joining us. And of course, to Mike, the OG slacker, and now the president of the Literature Supporters Club. He's come a long way for being here as well. Herman Melville crazy. Poor Herman. What a brilliant comet he was. I wish he were here today. You can find more at historyofliterature.com and Twitter at the Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E, 
Wilson. Support the show. Well, you know how all this works, right? Patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. We'll be back with a show on Ray Bradbury soon, a treat for all you fans of popular fiction and the brilliant imagination of the author of Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles and a story you might not have heard of, but which we will highly recommend that you check out. Like Moby Dick and Bartleby, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.